0: You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Today we focus our attention on what some might say is the most important, significant role that the church plays. I think without it, many of us wouldn't be here. I certainly wouldn't be here. And of course, I'm talking about mission. I'm talking about that E-word, evangelism. I'm talking about I'm talking about reaching the lost, communicating the good news of Jesus to those who do not yet know him. Our mission, our purpose statement, the reason we exist is proclaiming the hope of Jesus to Mossman and beyond. I'm saying that till I'm blue in the face. Many of you know that very well by now, which is good. Proclaiming the hope of Jesus to Mossman and beyond. That's why we exist to see people come to faith. Now, of course, we exist for other reasons, don't we? We want to grow spiritually together. We together want to mature as Christians. We want to worship God corporately as a church. We also, of course, want to build something here, a community where people from the outside go, what's going on there? But I tell you what, if we're not about, and that's part of it, about helping people cross from death to life, then I believe we've lost our way. Every single church... No matter where they are, no matter where they are, how old they are, they've got to fight the tendency to turn inward and focus on the immediate needs of the people gathered in this room. That's just normal human nature. But while I'm pastor here, I'm going to lovingly annoy and irritate us to turn outwards, to see lost people found. So today we are asking the question, why do we care about that? Why do we care about reaching the lost? Is this mic okay? Is it really irritating? Oh, it's all right. Give me a nod. It's okay. Good. Thanks, Alec. Okay. Um, we're going to be answering that question probably by, by, by looking at, I think, Jesus' maybe most famous parable apart from the Good Samaritan. It's the parable of lost Son. The lost sons. It's going to be very familiar to many of us here. And as we journey through this parable, we're going to discover together why you and I should care for the lost. Now, this parable begins with an opening statement from the author Luke, which really helps us interpret the parable itself. We're not going to go through every verse of the parable. We're going to journey through the story together, but it's helpful to check out these first couple of verses. Let me read them for us. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners And eats with them. Now, Luke has put this at the beginning of this passage for a reason. What do we have here? Two groups of people. We've got tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees, teachers of the law. Tax collectors, these were Jews who worked on behalf of the Roman government to collect money. They were traitors, absolutely hated. And then you had sinners, people of the night, unsavory characters, most likely pimps, prostitutes, thieves, those kind of people people you wouldn't necessarily think would want to be hanging out with a religious leader like Jesus. So you've got those people. That's one group. Then you've got another group, Pharisees and teachers of the law, good, moral, upright people, well-respected in the community. Two different types of people listening in to what Jesus teaches. Now, I think Jesus has a few reasons, a few purposes when he teaches this parable, but I reckon one of them is this. He is trying to redefine who's on the out, And who's on the in? Who's on the outside? And who's on the inside? Who's lost? And who's found? Jesus, in teaching this parable, redefines lostness. And I tell you what, it's kind of confronting to good, moral, and upright people. This is part of Jesus' ministry. He likes disturbing those types of people. Good, moral, and upright. You See, this is what happens when the gospel of grace is taught really well. Good people get uncomfortable. Now Luke records for us that these religious folks, remember two groups of people, tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees, teachers of the law, these people are muttering negative things about Jesus. Oh, he hangs around with people like that? They can't understand why those people are attracted to Jesus and why Jesus wants to hang out with them. It makes them feel uneasy. And it's within this context that Jesus actually teaches three parables. We skipped over the first two. The first one, parable of the lost sheep. It's all about the lengths someone goes to to rescue one lost sheep. The next one's the parable of the lost coin, the priority of finding that coin. And the next one is the parable of the lost sons where we put our attention to today. Now many of us know this story really well. One man had two sons. Today, because of time, we're only going to focus on that first one the younger son. You know the story. He goes to the father and does something just unspeakably cruel. Dad, give me my share of what the family owns now. My, my, my inheritance, my share in all that the family owns, give it to me now. Now, this is a little bit like asking, you. well, a lot like asking your parents for your share of the inheritance before they die. Now, of course, parents are free to give their kids whatever they want while they're alive, of course, aren't they? How else are we going to purchase property in a city like this, eh? But I tell you what, doing that to your parent, asking, no, no, demanding my share of the inheritance now, I mean, it's offensive now. Imagine back then in a shame and honor culture, traditional setting. It's like saying, Dad, I could give us stuff if you were alive or dead. I don't want you. I want the stuff you can give me. I don't want you. I want the stuff you can give me. I mean, just the rudeness, the uncaring nature of it, the heartless sort of behavior of the son. We're supposed to feel the weight of what the son does to the father, just the humiliation. In the original setting, when Jesus would have taught this, there would have been a, oh, amongst the crowd. This, you just did not do something like this. Now, if you notice, we're not told what the father does. or oh, sorry, we're not told what he says or what he thinks. His internal world, what's going on for him, we're not told. But the crazy thing is we are told he does it. He divides up the estate and gives the younger son his portion. Well, it doesn't take long for the youngest son to take off after that. He's got what he wants, and he's out of there. Heads off for a more exciting adventure. He can't wait to leave the boundaries of the family home and set out for everything he thinks his dad has been holding out on him. What a killjoy, that place, all those rules, all that obligation. I cannot wait to have all that in my rearview mirror. Now I'm finally free to do what I Want. See, the Son has this exciting vision for his life. One without the Father, one without work, one without boundaries. The very purpose of his life now is to fulfill every fantasy he's ever had. This is life. This is what true living looks like now. It's what's going on in the son's mind. But The vision of paradise the younger son has quickly becomes what it always is, a mirage. We grab for what we think will satisfy so many of us. We grab for what we think this is it. We think it's going to be fresh, life-giving water, but it just turns to sand catches in our throat, choking us of life. We're told pretty quickly he spends all he has, He just burns right through everything he's given. We don't know how much he was given, but I'd say a fair chunk of change. He burns through it quickly. And what does he do? Invest wisely? Spent none. We're told he just spends it on wild living. Wasted it. Gone. His fabulous vision of an unrestricted, fulfilling life. It's over like that. It just takes one verse for this vision of a paradise life to unravel. His money running out coincides with something that's going on with the land. They're having a tough time, not unlike Australia at the moment. Maybe it's drought, but it causes a famine. And so he's run out of money. The country he's in is going through a tough time. And he begins to be in need. Don't miss this. This is very important. This is a turning point in the story. He begins to be in need. Now, you can imagine him back home, right? I've had this feeling back home thinking, you know, what I need is to be out of here, right? That's my need. That's the, that's the itch that I desperately need to scratch. What I need is to get out of here. What I need to do is what I want to do. What I need to do is throw off the shackles of my father and get out of here. But be, now his choices have left him cold and he experiences what it really means to be in true need. Now, I don't know about you, but I reckon this highlights for us the only requirement for the Christian faith. And I've I, I got to be honest, I reckon it's a bit of a stumbling block for people like you and I. Educated, fairly well-to-do, ambitious, good things going for us. What's highlighted in the story here is something that's it is the only requirement for the Christian faith, and it is this need. That's it. Need. The only must have to receive the gift of grace. The only deal breaker in this whole thing is need. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Need. With all his money gone, food hard to come by, he takes the only job he can get, the only one available to him is feeding pigs. Now, I think all work has dignity, but this is a pretty low low. And particularly for Jewish people, back then, pigs, you could not get a more unclean animal in their culture. And feeding pigs, being in close proximity with them, this, again, would have Uh, Got a from the crowd. This is lowest of the low. He truly has hit rock bottom. Once the son of a wealthy, loving landowner father, secure in a household, having all he'd really ever need. Now, envious of the food the pigs are eating. Do you get that? The scene is pathetic. It's meant to be. Well, With regret filling his head, sadness filling his heart, and now hunger taking over his stomach. He begins to be in need, and it leads him to a revelation, an aha moment. He thinks, the servants, the many of them who work in my father's estate, they've got more than enough to eat. They're taken care of really well. And look at me, the son. I've got nothing. This revelation leads him to action. He thinks, okay, here's what I'm going to do. He makes a plan. I'll head home. That's what he says. I'm going to head home. I'm going to leave this. I'm going to head home. I'm going to say, dad, what I've done, I know, I know, it's pretty much unforgivable. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I know what I've done. It's changed our relationship forever. That's obvious. Of course, I can no longer be your son. I've forfeited that pride of place. Of course I have from what I've done. So just make me one, like one of your servants. Make me just like one of your servants. You know, maybe if I try, I could possibly earn back some of what I lost. One of your servants—that'd be great. See, he longs to be back in the household of his father, but he reasons the only way—it's as a servant. And I don't know about you, but it kind of makes sense to us, doesn't it? It makes sense. He had pride of place, set up yours to dad, took a third of the estate, squandered it. He should pay do you reckon? He's done something mightily wrong. He deserves to pay. He deserves to have a mighty consequence. So he gets up, he leaves the pig feeding gig, and he heads home. Now what happens next, I think, might be one of the most beautiful things in the Bible. If you're a Christian, this story might be quite familiar to you. You might think, oh yeah, I know I know what happens. I know what the father does. Well, if that's the case, I'm just going to pray that you would hear it anew today. That the father's actions would just blow away the cobwebs of your heart. Because the father in this story represents our father God. And let's see what happens. While the son was still a long way off, the father sees him. That's an easy thing to skip over. Lots of things like that in this story. Easy thing to skip over. But while the son is a long way off, the father sees him. How do you spot somebody when they're a long way off? You can only do it if you're looking out for them. See, if someone looms large on the horizon, they're easy to spot. Oh, there they are. Africa, it's obvious. But when they're a tiny, distant figure on the horizon, how do you do it? Because you're waiting. The father on the veranda waiting for his son to come home. And right away, we see the character of our amazing God on display in all its mystifying glory. The father's got his binoculars out. He's waiting for his son to return, longing for the day when his son would appear on the horizon, when he'd come to his senses and return. So the father sees him while he's still a long way off. But what does he feel? Now we're told... We don't know any of his thoughts or feelings, the inner world of the Father, until this point. And what does he feel? What's he feeling? Okay, he spots him on the horizon. Now what? Maybe it's, you know what? About bloody time, that dropkick son of mine came to his senses. Maybe it's, right, there he is. Let's put him to work and make him repay every single cent he got out of me. Or maybe it's so. The prodigal returns. Where the hell have you been? I wonder how many of us have heard similar things from important people in our lives. Well, what about our Father God? What does he feel? We're told he is filled with compassion for his son. He's filled with compassion for his son. And the Greek word here is cool. It explains this gut-wrenching Emotion, compassion. It moves you. This feeling it's not like a, a, a feeling where it's the single pretty tear, you know. This is the emotion where it's the red face, blotchy tears. You know what I'm talking about? That's what we do in our family, right? It's it's emotion that moves you. This is what the father feels toward his son. Real emotion. The father's compassion leads him to action. He runs to his son. So he spots him while he's still a long way off. He's looking out for him. He's filled with compassion and he runs toward him. Wealthy and well respected men back then did not run. Children might run. Servants might run to people like the father. Fathers, wealthy fathers, did not run. But this father could give us stuff about cultural norms. He runs to the son, throws his arms around him and kisses him, embraces his wayward, pig smelling party boy's son, and he kisses him. This is the character of God. This is the purpose. This is why Jesus tells this story, redefining who is lost and who is welcome home. This is the character of God, embracing every runaway that would return to him. This morning, we're trying to answer the question, why do we care about mission? Why do we care about reaching the lost? Because this is the heart of the Father. We didn't make this up. This is God's priority. It's his passion. It's his thing. Now, I don't know where you are at with your faith. You you, you still might be thinking, but God God is a mean-spirited, distant God just waiting for me to stuff up. He's a hard taskmaster. Who told you that? You didn't get it from the Bible, and you certainly didn't get it from this passage. God is a loving Father who could give us stuff about cultural norms, runs to the rebel. Embraces him, kisses him, and celebrates because the son has returned, because the lost is found. It's party time. This is the God we serve. Therefore, it's okay if we get a little bit excited when we're talking about this. This is a picture of a sculpture by the artist Charlie Mackesy called "The Return of the Prodigal Son." When the artist Charlie became a Christian later in life, he was just Enamored with this story. And he painted this and and sculpted this many times. Those of you who have done Alpha, this will be a familiar image to you. He's painted it dozens of times and made sculptures many times. It's an incredibly moving sculpture. I've seen the original in the UK. It's incredibly moved. Up close, you can just, he's done such a good job. Up close, you can see the emotion of the Father. It's kind of this relief, this sadness turned joy in his face. It's beautiful. You can almost feel the tight embrace of the father pulling the son into his bosom. And I think even present on that, you can see the son just lose his weight and collapse into the father's embrace. It's beautiful. Friends, this is not just a nice story this is not just a beautiful piece of art. Jesus is telling us this is the heart of our father. This is the very character of God. And because of the cross, it is possible. All sin is forgiven. All can be welcome home. All we need to do is turn around, repent to come home. I don't know where you're at. Do you need to come home? The reaction of the father, it's just obviously unexpected by the Son. Right, Because he launches into his plan that he had, that he came up with while he was hanging out with the pigs. He launches into his prepared speech, wiping away the tears. He says, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What does the father do? Ignores him. Brushes it aside. He's not interested. He talks to the servants. Quick, get the best robe. Get the family ring. Get the sandals on his feet. Prepare for a feast. It's time to celebrate. Cover my son's filthy stained clothes with a beautiful robe. Take the pressure off his blistering and sore feet with sandals. Place the family ring on his finger because he is my son. Kill the fattened calf. Meat back then was a delicacy. You ate it rarely, but the fattened calf reserved only for the most special occasion. And why? Verse 24. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This incredible illustration of grace shown towards the sun, it's almost too much. And yet it's what makes the Christian faith different to every other faith system or religion out there. I want to end pretty much on this quote. It's a long one but it's by uh, the man who wrote what's so amazing about grace, Philip Yancey. And And it's great. Would you stick with me? I think it's a great quote. I don't have it on the screen. You guys are great listeners. Here's the quote. It's the main thing that sets our faith apart from every other religion on the planet. Other faiths require you to do something to get right with God, mess up much, and you're toast. Christianity is the only religion that offers rightness with God, free of charge, with no strings attached. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Ephesians 2, 8-9. Heaven for free? That goes against our human nature, because we usually think we have to earn stuff. But that's not God's way. We can't earn our ticket to heaven. It's a gift. We are accustomed to finding a catch in every promise. But in Jesus' stories of extravagant grace, there is no catch, no loophole disqualifying us from God's love. Each has, at its core, an ending too good to be true, or so good that it must be true. Jesus did not give the parables to teach us how to live. He gave them, I believe, to correct our notions about who God is and who God loves. Ask people what they must do to get to heaven, and most reply, be good. Jesus' stories contradict that answer. All we must do is cry, help. God welcomes home anyone who will have him, and in fact, has made the first move already. That's what's so amazing about grace. End quote. Friend, The Father waits. He is not angry with you. He is filled with compassion. He is not hard to find. He runs to you. If we would just come to our senses and return home, where are you today? Have you been welcomed home by the Father? Have you felt the embrace of God? Are you still in a distant country? Are you maybe still a long way off, hoping the Father sees you? Are you in need of taking a step of faith toward God today?